Hi friends, welcome to the Trauma Tapes. I'm Dr. MC McDonald. I am a PhD trauma researcher and a life coach, and it's my goal in life to change the way that we define and understand and treat trauma. Here's why. Trauma is not actually a sign of weakness or disorder. It's a biological response born of strength. Without it, we would not survive. So I think the first step towards healing is being able to see this so that we can stop shaming ourselves for being human. I'm here with my sister, Elizabeth Meadows. Each week we read your letters and give you information and advice about how to understand and demystify your experiences and symptoms so that you can heal. We bring together my research with our lived experiences so that we can all better understand and cope with trauma. So pull up a chair, grab a coffee and join us. Hi, welcome to episode 14 of the Trauma Tapes. Hi, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good. Um, well, I don't think we have any things to wrap up from last week, do we? Not off the top of my head, no. No rewinds. Okay, cool. Do you want to just jump into the letter? Sure. Okay. Okay, so this letter starts, if I'm thinking of trauma in my life, what comes to mind is the beginning of, well, my life. My parents split up when I was a baby, so I don't know what it feels like to live with both of my parents. My father was an addict in every sense of the word pertaining to all drugs, sex, and who knows what else. And my mother was a young single mother who lost her own mother at 17. Her mother was an addict, but as far as I know, my mother was not an addict until I was 18. She was avoidant emotionally. She did her best. I was overprotected, but emotionally neglected. I spent a lot of time by myself, being alone, playing by myself, reading, learning, healing. That was safe. And and that is how I lived most of my life and sometimes continue to. The trauma, I think, begins with the immediate disappointments from my father. He wasn't there. He didn't show up to dance recitals. When my mom dropped me off at my grandmother's for my visits with him, I never knew if he would show up because many times he did not. I would sit on my grandmother's couch and stare at the door until he either came or my mom picked me up. When he did show up, he was always drinking alcohol and smoking cigarettes and weed and I'm sure other things I didn't understand at the time and now forgot. When I was 13, he molested me. I woke up to him touching me. I froze and before it could get too far, I mustered up my courage and I somehow was able to get back into my body, get up and leave the room. I went into another room and he didn't follow. After processing a little, I went back to the room and stood next to the door and I asked, are you drunk? He said, no. I think somehow I thought if he said yes, that it would be okay because maybe he didn't know what he was doing. I called my mom and she drove an hour to pick me up. She didn't ask me why or what was wrong or if I was okay and I didn't mention it. I didn't say anything to anyone about it for about two years. When I finally did, the authorities were called, but nothing happened. And when he talked to me about it, he said, at least it didn't go any further. And we stopped. He tried to make it seem like it was consensual. And the rest of my family said, I just wanted attention. They love my dad. He was handsome and charming. I had myself. I was bullied in school. My first boyfriend was abusive verbally and physically. In 2010, my dad finally died and I felt nothing. In fact, a week prior to his death, I thought to myself, but I was talking to him and I said, if you aren't going to get better, just go. And then he did. I never got to know what it feels like to have a healthy father. And every time a story, a show, or I'd see someone with their father or hear them talk about their father and how close they are, I'd spiral. I wasn't good enough for my dad to get his shit together and to be his best for me. I wasn't enough. I wasn't loved. Nobody cared about me. No self-worth. So when I'm triggered today, these are the types of thoughts I think. I'm healing. I'm doing the work. And I'm grateful because I'm learning more tools and information that I hadn't discovered yet in my journey to loving myself the way I wasn't, but deserved to be loved by my parents. They did the best they could. And I have gotten to a place of forgiveness, understanding, and compassion. Nobody knows what the fuck they're doing until they do, and then they do better, and unfortunately, my dad could never get there, and that's okay, because I will, and I am for my kids. 
That being said, I do sometimes feel guilty and shame for having children because for so long, I wasn't able to give my daughter what she needed because I never got what I needed. And I didn't know what it looked like or felt like. And I see how it's affected her. Like I have a hard time with physical touch and how sad it is for my daughter. We hug sometimes, but it's not like how I see other people with their kids. Nothing about connecting with my kids is easy, but I'm learning. And is it enough? And is it too late? Or am I really messing them up? Signed, guilt and shame. That is hard stuff. Yeah, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. What are your first thoughts? Um, you know, my, my heart breaks mm -hmm. for this person and what they've been through. It's, um, the, the first word I, I, that came to my, popped into my mind when I first read this letter was that this, what happened is unspeakable. And mm -hmm. then I thought unspeakable is not the correct word because this is happening and this is probably happening more often Mm -hmm. than any of us could possibly imagine. And we need to speak about it. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like, you know, we had another letter that discussed um, childhood sexual abuse and we talked about shining the light on it. And um, it's just, it's interesting that, that the first, my first reaction is to shut down a little bit and mm -hmm. to um, be certainly feel the feelings and be sad and be hurt that, that this person went through this, but to, it's so hard to understand and it's so hard to um, accept. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I fear that that's what a lot of people who come forward with these stories experience from the world. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean, yeah, totally. There's some research on that, on both of those things, actually, which I'll get to in a second, but um, the, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it's really, and I think it's also important that we talk about how uncomfortable it is, you know, and talk about how our impulse is to shut down because we can't do otherwise if we don't bring into the room that that's our initial impulse, you right. know, there. And uh, I, and I feel this is not about me. This is, I'm not trying to make this. No, no, no. It doesn't mean like at all. Yeah. My reaction to it. I just, um, that's where my mind went. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting that that's where it went. Yeah. I want to just read this, this, um, well, I'll come, I'll come back to this. I think that what, what I was meaning to say is that what, I think what you're feeling is really worth talking about because I think that one of the reasons that people, um, don't find a relational home when they experience stuff like this is because it's such a hard thing to relate to. Um, mm -hmm. but I also think you're right that this is happening more than we know, more than we're aware of. and you know, the, the statistics, we were, we were just looking at this before we started, research estimates that 15% of the general population has at least one such sexual contact, meaning um, some sort of incestual sexual contact. Um, and among women, research has yielded estimates as high as 20%. Father-daughter incest is the most commonly reported form of incest. So, it is happening. We do, you're totally right. We do need to talk about it. And I think like the idea of unspeakability is really interesting. Cause I think that, that this is exactly, this is a mark of trauma, right? Like when we experience something so overwhelming and shattering, we can't, we, it, it is unspeakable. And there's a dynamic tension there because the trauma needs to be spoken and there are these forces in place, both in our neuroscience and in society that block that off. And okay. so the trauma like needs to come forward and be spoken. And it, at the very same time, it's unspeakable. That creates this like chronic clash, you know, within the person who's dealing with it, which is why we suffer from, for so long from things like this. Um, so I think unspeakable is actually the exact word, you know, it is, it is unspeakable. How do you find words that are enough to articulate what that was? And then how do you find pairs of ears that are prepared and able to hear them, you know? Right. Right. So I, I just want to say also that I'm, I'm 
honored that the letter writer, and I feel like this with all of our letter writers, I'm honored that she trusts us with her story. That's an mm-hmm. honor. That's it, it takes a lot to talk about this stuff, especially when you've been shut down by people that you've come out to, you know, um, when you try to explain something like this um, and you are negated in some way, it's most people just shut down forever. You never, you never try to speak it again. When you have something unspeakable that you try to speak and you're denied, you, you just lock it away forever. And she was denied when she, when she spoke the truth then to her family. Exactly. Right. 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 So, you know, it's, it's, the act in and of itself is a violation. And then she continued to be violated right, by the people that are supposed to be looking out for her. Right. And, and I, heartbreaking. I, it is heartbreaking. It is no incest is consensual. No sex at 13 is consensual. That's just a, those are just facts. So the idea, but then I think we have to ask the question, why do we see it that way? Why is anyone capable of making that jump where they can say, oh, well, you just wanted attention or, right? Like, and again, I'm not saying that that's an okay response, but I think we need to understand why it happens. Um, and there's two things I want to talk about here. One thing is a movie. And then one thing is a, just a, a little excerpt from um, Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Recovery, which is wonderful. Okay. I'm just going to read these two paragraphs. Is that okay? Of course. This is about why do we side with the perpetrator? So we're trying to take a look at like, why, why is it hard sometimes to believe the victim? So she says to study psychological trauma is to come face to face, both with human vulnerability in the natural world and with the capacity for evil in human nature to study psychological trauma means bearing witness to horrible events. When the events are natural disasters or acts of God, those who bear witness sympathize readily with the victim. But when the traumatic events are of human design, those who bear witness are caught in the conflict between victim and perpetrator. It is morally impossible to remain neutral in this conflict. The bystanders forced to take sides. It is very tempting to take the side of the perpetrator. All the perpetrator asks is that the bystander do nothing. He appeals to universal desire to see, hear, and speak no evil. The victim, on the contrary, asks the bystander to share the burden of pain. The victim demands action, engagement, and remembering. Leo Ettinger, a psychiatrist who has studied survivors of the Nazi concentration camps, describes the cruel conflict of interest between victim and bystander. War and victims are something the community wants to forget. A veil of oblivion is drawn over everything painful and unpleasant. We find the two sides face to face. On the one side, the victims who perhaps wish to forget but cannot. And on the other, all those with strong, often unconscious motives who very intensely both wish to forget and succeed in doing so. The contrast is frequently very painful for both sides. The weakest one remains the losing party in this silent and unequal dialogue. In order to escape accountability for his crimes, the perpetrator does everything in his power to promote forgetting. So that's like, you know, oh, it was consensual. Oh, we stopped, right? Secrecy and silence are the perpetrator's first line of defense. If secrecy fails, the perpetrator attacks the credibility of his victim. If he cannot silence her absolutely, he tries to make sure that no one listens. To this end, he marshals an impressive array of arguments from the most blatant denial to the most sophisticated and elegant rationalization. After every atrocity, one can expect to hear the same predictable apologies. It never happened. The victim lies. The victim exaggerates. The victim brought it upon herself. And in any case, it's time to forget the past and move on. The the more powerful the perpetrator, the greater is his prerogative to name and define reality, and the more completely his arguments prevail. So that was kind of a long passage, but she does such a beautiful job explaining why we take the side of the perpetrator. The perpetrator just asks you to forget the thing you want to forget anyway. We don't want to admit that this is happening. I like the shared the burden of pain. Yeah. Why is that so hard to do? Right. Why is it so hard to sit with someone in their pain Mm -hmm. when that's all they want? That's all they need. Right. It doesn't mean you have to take it on. It doesn't mean you have to fix it. It just means you have to attune, relate. Right. That's it. That makes me cry. Sorry. (laughs) 
But I think it's, um, you know, I, again, I'm not trying to say that your family was, that it was okay that they denied you, right. Or that they didn't believe you. And I'm not saying it's okay that your father, you know, tried to explain it away, but I think this is why it's so prevalent and this is why it works so well. It's not a statement of you and your credibility or who you are. It's a statement of the way that human psychology works. Yeah. And you also hear the stories, you know, that this victim was, um, took one road, you know, she got out of the room, she went back and questioned him. She told the truth two years later. Right. Which by the way, all of those things are, those are mountains you climbed at 13, you know, those are, those are remarkable, Mm -hmm. but the people who might take the other road and shut down or in order to protect themselves will also get the same sort of treatment. It just won't be spoken. You know, that's when the perpetrator often, um, you know, threatens, says, if you, if you say anything, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt someone you love. I mean, you just can't win. There's no right Mm -hmm. way to experience this or go through this. And it's um, for that reason, there's when someone comes to you with a story like this, or someone tells you this story, there's nothing that you can say that's going to make it better. Mm -mm. But you can pause, you know, and you can relate and you can create space for the person to process and mirror back what they're experiencing and validate, you know, right. So that they start to feel less isolated. Listen, understand mm-hmm. and validate, I guess. Yep. Totally. I, um, I, I watched this movie last week called the, the tale, which I is very hard to watch. And so I'm not going to recommend it or not recommend it, but just, I had to, I have a very high tolerance for watching difficult things and I had to fast forward more than once. So just FYI, but it was beautifully done. The, um, the director and the writer, it's a true, it's her true story. And it's about a relationship that she had when she was 13 with her track coach, who was, I think like 38 at the time. And the, 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 one of the things that was really fascinating in the movie has to do with the power of narrative and external perspective. And so the movie opens, this is like kind of a spoiler. So if you do want to watch it, just FYI, this is a spoiler. The movie takes place in, in different times. So you get um, her, the, the character in the present moment as she's sort of having this memory. And she talks about this relationship that she had when she was a teenager as a relationship. And she's like, you know, I had this relationship with this older man. Yeah, that's problematic. But she kind of like brushes it off. You know, she's talking mm-hmm. to her fiance about it and saying like, it's not really that big of a deal. And you see her remembering herself at 13. And she's like, in her memory, she's probably more closer to like 16. She's very like well-developed. She seems like a woman. She acts like a woman. She's precocious, um, you know, kind of an old soul kind of a thing. And so you can see how her memory has done this work to rationalize what happened and to make this into a legitimate relationship. And then she comes across a picture that her mother has of her at actually 13. And Mm -hmm. it throws her whole sense of identity into question because she's like, holy shit, like I was a kid. Right. I was a kid. Like 13 is is too young. She, she, and so then the rest of the movie takes place, um, in flashback with her at 13 and it shows the relationship, including some sex scenes, which I think are, there's been a lot written about this movie because it's pretty inflammatory that way, because you see this little girl and you see this older man, this 30 or 40 year old man grooming her and convincing her that this is legitimate, that it's a relationship, that this is love that she's a woman now and that he has like brought her into womanhood. He's been doing all this, you know, rationalizing about it, but it's so fascinating the difference between her, her memory of herself at 13 and then her actual self at 13, you know, that's her protecting herself initially. A hundred percent. Like she, because here's the thing, like what's harder to admit to yourself in your memory that you were abused and assaulted multiple times by someone you trusted who was also a mentor or that you had like a, you know, somewhat inappropriate relationship with someone kind of young. And so you developed early sexually and that's it, right? Like that's way more easy to 
swallow. And so you kind of rewrite the memory. And again, the movie does a really beautiful job explaining that as a coping mechanism. And then at the end of the movie, she's kind of grappling with literally her 13 year old self. Like the two actresses are in the same space and they're, she's like, why did you believe that he loved you? And the 13 year old is like, he loved me. Like this is legitimate. This is a relationship, you know? And the, the adult woman is like, no, it wasn't. And at the, so at the end, the idea is that the two, those two selves integrate, but the reason that they split, this is very common in trauma. And this is one of the reasons that dissociative identity disorder is so common in victims of childhood sexual assault is that your identity has to split in order to contain both of those worlds, the world in which the sexual assault happened and the world that everyone else is living in. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. What would be the, you know, I'm asking you to speculate, but what if, what if she wasn't able to integrate? Would it bleed over into other parts of her life? Yes. Okay. And in a thousand different ways. So it it could be one of the things that commonly, I mean, there's lots of different things. Sometimes people become, and in the movie, actually, um, I, I, and I was glad that they did this because I think this needs to be normalized. We have this idea from lifetime movies that victims of sexual assault become completely frigid. Often what's more likely is that they actually become promiscuous because they are trying to say, no, I'm going to take my own sexuality. Sex doesn't mean anything. I'm going to have sex with whoever I want, whenever I want to, because whatever. And that is not, I'm not saying anything bad about <laughs> being promiscuous. That's your own choice. But in that situation, it's more coming from a reaction to the trauma than an actual choice. So it's not empowering. It's like this reaction. Um, And in the movie, that's what happened to the character. She becomes promiscuous and her mother's judging her for that. And so she's, when she goes to, to reintegrate, she has to like rethink all her whole sexual identity from 13 to today, which includes her current part. I'm rambling back to the question, which was, will it come out in your behavior? Yes. In some way there will be usually some sort of symptom. And that could be something very mild that you don't feel like is disruptive. It could just be like, you know, having a mildly dissociative experience when you have sex or feeling a little bit uncomfortable with human touch, but kind of getting over it. Right. Um, But it will sort of take hold in some way if you don't have reintegration, you know, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. There's a beautiful book too that's also very hard to read called My Dark Vanessa that was about a girl who it's fiction, but you know, not not saying that 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 the author experienced this, but it's very true of people that experience this, where the a, a young girl has an affair with her professor and believes again that it's a relationship and that it's love, and then and she for the book is grappling with her version of things and how they happened and how that kind of reverberated through all of her adult relationships with everyone after him. Um, And to let that go is to grapple with, I mean, the, the victim also has to deal with this, this thing that Judith Herman is talking about with um, this reckoning with evil, right? Like if you believe that, that the incest or the abuse was the result of a relationship, then you don't have to come to grips with the fact that it is not, and it is actually abuse that comes from evil. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a support structure around that to help you grapple with that, that's shattering. Yeah. And so you carry around your version of this relationship in your head as if it was a relationship that didn't have a power dynamic that didn't have abuse, you know, just because it's easier to, to continue moving through the world. Well, the world becomes a very unsafe place. Right. And and most of us, you know, learn that at some point, hopefully when we're older. Right. Uh, certainly not as a child, but if you, yeah, if you're forced to recognize the presence of evil at yeah. that point in your life, it the, the world becomes a very scary place. Right. And I, and I think we're very bad about this in our culture, right? We don't, um, we, we, we just deny it. We just say, oh, it's not that it's, and this is true of any evil. This is not just this. Oh, it's not true. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, he couldn't have meant it that way. We're dismissive by accident. It's our default. And so we then by extension, of course, are not very good at helping people deal with this moral injury of, you know, having to grapple with the fact that this kind of evil isn't just 
possible. It's prevalent. Right. And how can you learn to navigate? I mean, the whole world becomes, we talk about unspeakable, like unlivable, you know? Right. And I, I, I just think that um, denying or, or consciously turning your cheek to, to these things is a luxury we can't afford anymore. You know, totally. I, I, I think that when these things are put out in the world, we have a responsibility to mm-hmm. sit with them, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like I, rem- I remember the, God, I'm not going to remember the name of the movie. I told you to watch it, but it was too hard. It was the, um, about the central park five. This is uh, unrelated, but yeah. watching that and just being so angry and mm-hmm. so frustrated, mm-hmm. you know, to the point of tears that, that this stuff happens. Yeah. Often. Often. Yeah. And it's, you, you have to face that. Mm-hmm. You have to be open to that. You have yeah. to sit with that. Yeah. You know, which sounds totally. like a huge bummer. And like, I, I get why people, you know, mm-hmm. turn away from it, but. But here's the thing. Me. Like we, yes, there is darkness and we have to just sit with that and, and look at it and admit it and get to know it and all that stuff. And there's also lots of other stuff, you know? Right. And that, I think that we focus like when we're in this, like, I don't know how to like articulate this when we're in this like dynamic tension with like, okay, the trauma needs to be spoken. It can't be spoken. It needs to be spoken. It can't be spoken. We get locked up. And we think if we speak the trauma, then the trauma is the only thing. And it's actually the opposite, which is true, which is if you speak the trauma, then you get to also let in all the other things. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the light comes in the room and the trauma is still there. That little piece of darkness never goes away, but that room becomes populated with all the other things. Does that make sense at all? Yeah. But it's hard to let it in because we're trying to like stand at the door and be like, no, 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 like this isn't a thing. And and then we're just at war all the time. It's a thing. Yeah. There, there's another thing I want to talk about, which is sort of related to the, to. I mean, it's related to this, but this kind of comes from the movie and it's a really interesting thing. Um, and it's a question that I think a lot of people have when, what do you do when someone comes to you and they say, I had a relationship with a 40 year old when I was 13. Mm-hmm. And the, um, they did this again really well in the movie there was, so this, this comes out to this woman's fiance in the movie and he just responds in rage and says, how can you think that was a relationship? That's abuse. And he labels her experience and says, this is rape. You were raped. Right. And he's launching all of these very intense, heavy words at her as she is in the middle of grappling with this Mm -hmm. and she's in this place of overwhelm of like trying to understand what happened. And she's seeking out all these people from that time in her life to see who else was involved and all this other stuff. And he, his rage is rightful, right? Because it's a, it's, it's a thing that we should rage at, but you should not rage at or label the experience of the person who's coming to you to tell you the story because it shatters her. And I see this a lot. I think that, and it's, it's, it comes from a good place, but it is misguided and dangerous. And we need to be careful of it. Where if you come and tell me a story and I know things about trauma, then I try to label your experience before you are ready to label your experience. And again, you are a victim, right? It is more important and empowering for the person who's been through the event to label it themselves in language that they choose than it is for us to try to slap labels on their experience because we think we know what's right. Right. That's not, that's not okay. It's coercive. Right. right? Um, and you can do that in ways that are not as like violent. You know, I see this a lot, like on college campuses where people are very, they want to be validating. And so someone will come and say, you know, I had this kind of weird experience last night. Like I drank too much and I was hanging out with my friend and, and I don't think he was drinking and we had sex and I don't, I don't, remember anything. And then the person will jump to that was rape. You were abused. Let's go to the title nine office. Let's file a report. All of that stuff is, is it comes from a good place, right? right? But softness and nuance are required. (laughs) Ask the person if they identify it that way, ask them if they feel like they were assaulted, let them know of their, um, options and then let them choose which option feels best for them and then check in later 
And then instead of, instead of like share the burden of pain, it's share the burden of confusion, right? Share the burden of uncertainty. Yes. 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 Very well said. Yes, exactly. It's not, we can't fix these things. And you, what we are responsible for the best way to listen is to meet the person where they are, ask questions, Right. right? What is that like? What are you feeling about that? What can we do today to help you feel better? Should we go to the hospital and get a rape kit? Does that feel like not an option? It's okay. Yeah. You know, cause there's a lot yeah. of continuing to judge and, and shout at people again, deal with your rage on your own and it's rightful. We should be enraged at these things, but um, don't fling it at the person who's grappling with it. Right. And don't label yeah, don't label somebody else's experience. They need to label it. They need to choose language that feels right to them. That is such an important part of healing. And that language might change. You know? 100%. Yep. They might choose language in the moment and then that might evolve or change. Yep. Right. But it's their experience. It's their story. It's their journey. It's their, right. yeah, that's, that's really good advice. And sometimes neutral language feels better. I don't know if I'm comfortable with the word rape. Boundary violation feels really like what happened. Right. And then, you know, and then, okay, cool. Then what, right? What's our next step? And again, I know that comes from a good place, but it's like the, we have to actually think critically about what we're doing and what's happening, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Cause I think it's, if we want to be better listeners, it's about attunement. It's a good word. I like it. Um, okay. So what do you think about the letter writer and her, her children? Okay. Yeah. Um, quickly, I want to touch on the father figure thing um, first, because I think this is sure. maybe operative in her raising her children and also in her seeing herself. Um, you didn't have a father. I'm not enough. And I wasn't loved are two different statements. You weren't loved by that man. Right. Um, that seems to me, given what you've written, like a true fact. And it, and, I, and I think you've experienced that in your own somatic experience when he died and you felt nothing, right? That's because yeah. there wasn't love there. Would you say that he's incapable or would you not even give that? Well, I don't even know, but it's um, it's not a statement of you. It's a statement of his capacity. So yeah, I guess I'm capable, right? Incapable, okay. incapable, incapable. incapable you know, I'm not enough is not the same thing. Just because he didn't love you doesn't mean you're not enough. He didn't love you as a statement of his capacity, of his place in the world, of his wounds. You know, that's not for you. That's his stuff. Right. Um, it, it's not a statement of your worth and neither is your family's response. I think this is really hard for us to understand when we talk about the ways that family units in particular respond to things, because I mean, it's in our, uh, right. These are our family units form the way that we relate to the world, the way that our neurobiology is programmed, all of this stuff. And so going against them or having a different belief is really hard, no matter what it is. Um, And when it's something like this, when the whole family is grappling with this problem of evil in a way, it's really tricky to have any kind of like integration within your family system, you know? So I would think like, if you could find father figures in your life, that would be hugely healing for you. Um, And those can be people you're, you relate to or people from like fiction, right? They can be movie figures. Gandalf comes to mind out of absolute nowhere, right? Like what would it mean to have had a father? Oh, that's like, wow. What would the ideal father have, um, have been like, and is, has there been anyone in your life, a teacher, a doctor, a friend, an uncle who, who did love you like that? And what did that feel like? And how can you cultivate those kinds of relationships in your life? Because just because you didn't have a father doesn't mean you don't get one in a father figure kind of way, you know? Right. Right. I like that. And then when it comes to raising children, like, I think, I mean, this, this part of the letter in a sense was like the most heartbreaking Yeah, because um, I can, I feel like the letter writer was kind of, she's carrying shame from her own experience and from the way her family responded into her relationship with her kids. It doesn't belong there. 
And so I think, you know, practically when you're starting to feel that guilt and shame, I think you can turn to it and say, there's no use for you here. Like, please get the fuck out, you know? Yeah. Um, (laughs) But I also think like we, we focus on the wrong thing. Um, when we're focusing on like not failing, then we, we we're, we're asking the wrong question. We're focusing in the wrong place. We all fail our children. We all fail in every relationship that we have. The idea of perfection is a toxic one that also comes from shame, by the way. And so um, don't give up on the idea that you are or are not failing or that you somehow wouldn't be failing if this hadn't been your past experience. Mm-hmm. You have done amazing things with your life given what has happened and you've been able to have children and love them in a way that you were not loved. That alone is a huge accomplishment. Yep. So instead of starting in the shame, start with that as your foundation and then focus on, on recovery, not on failure. Yeah. We can't avoid traumatizing our children. It's just, that's just the way development works. But we, what we can do is work with the failure. Yeah. So if you feel like she mentioned like um, kind of being uncomfortable with physical touch being an issue with her daughter, how can you bring that into the room? I don't know how old your daughter is, so it might not be appropriate at the moment, but could you share the experience with her at some point when it's appropriate? And you don't even need to share your past. You could simply say, you know, there's different ways of relating to people. Some people really prefer physical affection and touch. I am not very comfortable with that. I prefer these things. And so these are the things, these, this is how I show you that I love you. I always compliment you. I always make sure you have what you need. I'm doing these things. Bring in that conversation if you can and see, right? The other thing is that you could be projecting into her experience and thinking that she's having a traumatic experience or she's having this lack that she, that might not be there. She might not be feeling that at all. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking too, that because those were things that you missed or did not have doesn't mean that that's yeah. what she's experiencing. There are, and also don't compare yourself to other people, you know, right. just because someone else shows love in a different way or hugs all the time or says, I love you all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not, that's not necessarily the right path for everyone. Right. And you are someone who uh, stands in your truth and mm-hmm. are remarkably honest and authentic. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's a tremendous way to parent. That's absolutely, I think that's one of the best examples out there of of how to live and how to be truthful and how to be honest and how to be authentic. So yeah, celebrate what you are doing. But I think you're right. We don't know how old the children are, um, Mm -hmm. or the daughter is. But, you know, it might be appropriate at some point to share that story. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, our parents were, uh, came from backgrounds that were not necessarily demonstrative or affectionate and, you know, were, had their own experiences that we don't know the extent of, um, but they, they did a good job. Mm-hmm. You know, they broke the cycle. You're breaking the cycle. Yeah. That just gave me the goosebumps. Yeah. And that's something to be so enormously proud of. Mm-hmm. It might not look like, you know, the way you wanted to be parented, but you have broken this vicious right. cycle. Right. And leaning into that, talking about physical touch, if you can, and again, you don't have to share your the details of your past experience with your daughter at this point or ever, if you don't want to, but you can use this as a way to teach her boundaries in her own body right? You're modeling for her what it feels like to touch only when you feel comfortable. Yeah. That's a huge lesson that we should all be teaching our children, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think sometimes when we're focused so much on like, oh, I'm failing, we actually miss the ways that we're succeeding. Right. You know, you're labeling her experience as sad, but maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's empowering. I like that. And I think, you know, you're just this question, like, am I ruining, is it too late? Am I really messing them up? Like, absolutely not. Nothing about connecting with my kids is easy. She says, and you're doing it anyway. You know, like if, if we doubt that there's light in the world, look at the light that you are in the face of all this darkness. Mm, That's beautiful. 
you're doing it anyway. And there's so much like, you know, she says, it's not like how I see other people with their kids. We got to stop this stuff with comparison. You know, it's violent shame. She wants to do the right things. She wants to give the kids everything that she didn't have, Mm -hmm. but she already is. You already are. Yeah, totally. I also love, I just want to kind of touch on this, that she's gotten to this place of forgiveness, understanding, and compassion, even for her father. Yeah. That's remarkable too. Nobody knows what the fuck they're doing until they do. And then they do better. And unfortunately my dad could never get there and that's okay because I will. And I am for my kids, right? You're breaking the cycle. That's huge. And in terms of going to the kind of brain science and physical touch, you are going to be someone who experience, who is very likely to experience physical touch as threatening on a neurobiological level. And that's real. And so if you want to work with that and welcome physical touch into your life in a different way, you have to start there with the validation that that is a trauma response that is neurobiological and protective and adaptive and good. Mm-hmm. And not a uh, something you should feel ashamed of or view as like a, a deficiency in you, you know? Thank you for sharing. Yeah. And we, we feel for you. It's um, I'm so sorry for everything you've been through. You're doing all of the things. Your kids are lucky. They are lucky. I'm sure you're an amazing parent. And you are who you are because of what you've experienced, not in spite of it. Right. Integration. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I just circling back really quickly to the, to the letter, I mean, to the um, statistics, if you've been through this, it's a terrible thing and you're not alone, right? That, that number again was 20% of women have experienced at least one incestual and that's just incest. This, uh, that doesn't leave talk about, you know, other kinds of abuse. So if you feel really overwhelmed and alone, you're not alone. It's okay to be overwhelmed and you can heal from that, even though it's dark, you know? That's a shocking number. I know. It's hard to it's hard to want to understand how that happens. Okay. Tiny little joy. Okay. I want to say something about tiny little joys though, in light of this conversation okay. too. Like we don't dip into the joy stuff just because it's silly in the face of all the darkness we talk about. We do it because it is it is a part of healing. And I think like I've, I've been on this sort of like rampage against this, this idea of the work, which I don't know what it even means or where it came from, (laughs) but like (laughs) this idea that you have, that the work has to be hard is false. A lot of the time, the work is in laughing and connecting because when you're connecting to that part of your brain, which I'm now calling the chicken nugget part of your brain, (laughs) um, (laughs) You're, you're healing. You're you're bringing your brain gently away from panic and hypervigilance and fear and threat into safety and comfort. And humor is a part of that. And joy is a huge part of that. And I think in the next like five or 10 years, we're going to see that this is the, this is how we heal from trauma. This is the missing puzzle piece, you know, laughter and joy and connection. Totally. Yeah. So mine, I'll go first. Okay. Mine is, um, there's a lot of things that I, that I don't like about Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, we can tell it this for like an hour. You know, there's, I don't really need to go into it, but you know, there's a lot of things that are annoying and and things you see and people's political beliefs and, you know, it it can be very, very frustrating, but there are good things that come out of it, I believe. Mm -hmm. And one of the good things that came out of it for me is that a friend from high school, Lauren um, reached out to me via Facebook and we were able to reconnect and um, we were, we were very close friends in high school, like junior and senior years of high school, and then kind of lost touch when we both went away to college. But this reconnection today happens to be her birthday. So I got the notification on Facebook and I texted her and she's coming up next week. Um, So we're going to make some time to see each other, but there's something about for me reconnecting with someone from that point in my life mm. before life got serious, you know, mm. before you had bills and taxes and yeah. mortgages and marriages and divorces and death and, you know, all the things <laughs> that just like reminds me of who I was back then. Oh yeah, And, you know, it makes me happy. It's like, it's like this, um, 
person who just knew you when it was all about potential and silliness and fun. And, and I was lucky enough to be experiencing those things that I'm not saying that's everyone's journey, but um, it's just a nice reminder. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. just being able to reconnect with her and um, reach out to her and kind of recapture that mm-hmm. brings me to a, to a, a joyful place. I love that. Oh, good. <laughs> love that. I, it's making me emotional for so every, I'm like, just, I can't, I need to cry or something. It's, <laughs> everything's making me cry today, but I'm picturing you in that. I don't know who it was that had the red. Oh, it's her. Yep. yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the convertible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just picturing like standing at the side door and watching you guys drive off like woohoo and being like oh, high school. <laughs> it was so fun. It was such a fun, like light. And of course at the time it was like drama and right. stupidity <laughs> and boys and you know, but it was so fun. Yeah. It was fun, you know. Yeah. Those there's a really like crucial piece of advice in there, which is if you're going through something really hard, if you can connect back to people who knew you before the hard thing. Yeah. It's a really good way to recover that piece of your identity that you may have forgotten about. That was that thing that, um, I know I, t- I shared this with you at the time when Robin Williams was interviewed on, um, inside the actor studio. Yeah. He was talking about a role. I believe it was the Fisher King, but I could be wrong. And he, and I wrote this down at the time and this was before mom, way before mom and dad died. But he said, when something like when you experience a traumatic event, you need to go back to the person that you were before the event. Wow. I'll find it. I've wrote it in a journal, you know, 20 years ago, but yeah, 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 exactly. Like recapturing that feeling. It just, it just puts me right back there. That's so funny. I now I will kind of want to change mine now based on yours. (laughs) No, don't. Don't I was just, well, do, well, just, do whatever you're comfortable with. Just to tack on to yours. I have two friends from forever ago, Jess and Jen. Shout out guys. I know. Listening. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, I like revel in their friendship and, the, and I'm so grateful to have had them both in my life for so long because I mean, we enjoy each other always and always have, but it's also like when you're feeling lost or you don't know who you are, you can check back with these people and tell them a story. And they're like, no, no, that doesn't sound like you, or that sounds like you, or remember this thing that happened and they can help you connect the dots. And it's such a, a life-giving, you know, think Jess and I have this thing, the truth, the, the, the trust tree, the tree of trust, the trust tree, where it's like, okay, I don't know where we developed this in like ninth grade, where it was like, you can call this person who you haven't maybe talked to in six months and be like, can we go into the trust tree? And then you tell them something you have never, you could never tell anybody else and get their honest, unflinching advice on it. Like no judgment in the trust tree, nothing gets shared that gets shared in there. Like, it's just, you know, and it's it's a funny little shorthand because we're, you know, We've been doing that for more years than I want to admit because it was ninth grade when we met, but yeah. That's funny. Cause I remember you following you and Jen in the car somewhere. I don't know why I was driving behind you, but you guys were both like bebop and dancing in the, <laughs> in the front seat of the car. And this was not that long ago, but it's like, you just, you got right back into that routine oh, yeah. and you were yeah. like singing out loud and dancing and, you know, <laughs> it was just, it was fun to watch. So, yeah. Those, yeah, those relationships. One time we, we, we made another person laugh hysterically in a car next to us. Cause we were laughing so hard in the car <laughs> and this guy, we were stopped at a really long light and the guy like looked at us and we were just cracking up, crying, laughing. And then he was crying, laughing. He, we weren't talking to him. He didn't know what we were laughing about, but yeah, it's contagious. It's just, it is. Yeah. There's something about that. Like that familiar, when you can just drop in to that same rhythm with somebody, even if you haven't seen them in two years or talk to them and whatever, you know, yeah, There's huge value in that. So mine, mine was way sillier and, and smaller, but, um, but that's the point, right? <laughs> these are, these can be tiny and can mean all sorts of things, which is just that um, the silliness and the humor, I've been really struck by this in the last like couple of days that, that happens on TikTok <laughs> is just delightful. Like it is delightful. I had this moment the other day. There's, I sent Lisa the other day, George, the monkey who just like opens mail and throws stuff. (laughs) Like we have been dealing like, you know, 
when this, this, this last year and however, however long is going to go down in history, right? This is, this is history making time. And there's been lots of terrible stuff. Of course, there's also been like people picked up this app and made silly content for other people for no money yep. so that we could feel connected and yeah. you could have a couple minutes of watching a monkey open the mail and throw stuff around the house. You know what I mean? Like people are sharing their, their tiny little joy in that. And there's a lot of bullshit on there too, I'm sure. But if you follow the silly stuff, then you only see the silly stuff I'm finding. Which yeah. Is, of course that, you know, we need to all cultivate our social media more that way. Um, but I just was sort of floored by that the other day. Like this is, you know, people sharing these little bits, making ridiculous movies, making themselves look like fools, just, just for a laugh. Like that's a beautiful, resilient human quality. And I love it. That's great. That's the, um, it's not TikTok. Who's the hunker downers guy the, on Instagram oh, with the um, video? Leslie, Leslie Jordan. Yes. Yeah. That was because of the pandemic, right? Yeah. All those videos started. Yeah. Instagram and, videos. Hey there, hunker yeah. downers. <laughs> How y'all doing? <laughs> just that connection, like that, like, I just, I don't know. There's something really beautiful in that. And we're, I don't want us to miss it, you know? Yeah. When we're just talking about all the terrible things that have happened, which I don't mean to deny. It's just that they're, they're there too, you know? Yeah. You need some balance. Yeah. So I love that. I, I look at TikTok for a little bit each night and it's just, it's a way to disconnect and laugh and be silly and that's it. It's like a little vitamin. It's like a little, little medicine. <laughs> Take my TikTok vitamin. Yep. <laughs> I think that's it. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Um, please subscribe and rate. That helps us get seen by other people, which is really helpful because that's, you know, how this stuff works as far as I understand, which is very little. Um, email us at the, the trauma tapes at gmail.com, not trauma tapes at gmail.com. It's the trauma tapes. Cause we've had a couple of people say that they got a, got a message bounced back. So if you've emailed us and we haven't, you know, talked about, if we haven't responded, that's why the trauma tapes at gmail.com follow us on Instagram and come back next week. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.